This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. and, and um, why I came to write it, really, which was, um, yeah, throughout my career of offering farms advice, I kept coming across, you know, you always come across those farmers that just seem to be good at it. And um, I got a bit curious as to why that was so. And and through, through my work of working with farmers and trying to, help them unravel that secret. I did a lot of research into different surveys and, um, you know, academic studies, and it just kept coming back to these three themes of, you know, in in broadacre agriculture, crops, people, and money. G'day, listeners. You're listening to the Farms Advice podcast, where we talk everything agribusiness. This week's an interesting one with our first author, Dr. Kate Burke, joins us to discuss her new book, Crops, People, Money and You. It's a great book to see a book with purpose as Kate has been on a mission helping farmers to understand their true potential. So that's, um, and there's such a gap, Jack, uh, the, the really Good farmers are earning twice as much money as everyone else, and so there's so, you know the flip side of looking looking at that is there's this huge potential there for people to improve returns, and I sort of got a bit sick of hearing all the negative stuff about ag, and so I just wanted to put out the message that of hope really that if if you have a real crack and and um, have some and 
learn how to master those three things, you know, the, the, there's a lot of upside. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good. Like for me, I've been, my new year's resolution was to get stuck into books, one book a month this year. Um, yeah, great. And then when you're doing that, you're looking at like American books or books from the UK. There's nothing to within Australia about Australian. There's like stories and everything, but not about building Australian like agribusiness as such like that. So it's good to see another book come out. Yeah, well, that's that was one of the other motivations was, you know, these books like Bill Malcolm's um, Farming Game Now and Australian Agriculture, those sort of textbooks from from uni. Um, yeah, 300 pages long. like. Yeah, 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 huge. yeah, and, and, and really academic. Um, but then, then, then there's this huge gap and you're into lifestyle books like beekeeping and, you know, um, sort of, yeah, basically lifestyle farming books and there, there's nothing in between. And so I was really motivated to write something readable, I suppose, a bit like the Barefoot Investor for Farming. Yeah, well, if it's anything like Barefoot Investor for Farmers, you're on the right track. Yeah, I hope so. That's the plan. Just need to get that guidance, I suppose. So we may as well get stuck into it, Kate. Thank you for coming yeah, on the show. Yeah, sure. It's great to have no you. Worries. So you're actually Dr. Kate Burke. Yeah. What What are you? What did you study? What's your doctorate? In? Oh, so my, my back, background's in um, agricultural science and a PhD years ago in agronomy and plant breeding. Yeah. Long time ago. Um, basically my background is in yeah in victoria my background's been in consulting um yeah one-to-one consulting and then some time in corporate ag i've been working for myself as an advisor uh, with think agri for the last five years so that's the that's the snapshot but all based in um based in victoria but working nationally so you've got agricultural roots yourself or you've been thrown into the yeah yeah no no i grew up on our family farm is still operational here in northern victoria and um it's uh, 150 years old so we've been yeah, right. around for a while so you're still yeah, traveling yeah, through yeah. the family yeah 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 my um brother and brothers and um and nephew are, are the current custodians yep that's great we sold our family farm on the 90th year so a bit sad that we didn't get to the oh, century yeah. Yeah, where, where did you grow up, Jack? Out, well, Kenya way. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty pretty tough country out there. Yeah, it is, and then moved into the central west of New South Wales, so it's going well. But talk to me a bit more about your Crops, People, Money and You, the book you're bringing out, well, have brought out. What led to this and where's it going? Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, yeah, I guess I've been uh, working with with farmers for the last 30 years now. It makes me feel a bit old. Uh, and and I just kept, I was really fascinated why some farmers are just really good at making decisions and, and just seem to have a knack for making the right decision at the right time. So I did quite a bit of research as to what makes a successful farm business and what drives operating returns. And all the studies, regardless of whether it was grain farming, which is my background, hence the word crops, or 
whether it was dairy or sheep, it just kept coming back to these three themes of being really good at your production, so crops, really good with money, so having a profit focus, and having a knack with people and yourself, so being able to manage yourself but also have good relationships with other people and and so you can get things done and and have good support networks and basically make good decisions and get everything done on time and it just seemed that that combination leads to a magic recipe that ends up with you know 25% of the farming population earning twice as much as their peers yeah, it's good it's good that you've like established those different traits i think everything stems from what you said, communication, the people skills, as then the follow on from production and then turning it into a profitable business. That communication down through the line has to be there. Yeah, ab- absolutely, Jack. And, and I guess you know, traditionally when you look at how farming evolved in Australia with big pastoral farms and, and hierarchy and, you know, getting in shearing teams and contract labour, we probably haven't been so good on the people side Um, and we sort of expect to communicate by osmosis. A bit like the other day my husband went into the bakery and I said, how about we get something sweet? And in my head I wanted a piece of caramel slice and he came out with apple cake and when I... When I mentioned that I was expecting caramel slice, he said, well, you didn't actually ask for caramel slice. And I think that happens on farms every day. Yeah. Even if it's a miniature like communication or something a bit larger. Yeah, correct. Correct. Exactly. So um, it's something we haven't been taught. Like we we get taught how to, if you grow up on a farm, you get taught the nuances of production and operation and machineries virtually from the first time you you know, drive in the in the ute with your dad feeding sheep or sit on sit on his his knee or your mum's knee in the in the tractor and and I guess the money stuff's a bit the same because you but the communication stuff we we're not really taught that and um, it it's such a critical skill. Absolutely. I've got a funny story. We've got two paddocks Waddle and Wallaby. And dad just said, we've got a sheep stud. So I had to go get the ewes in. And then he just sort of mumbled and I thought he said wallaby. But <laughs> like the two paddocks, one's an hour muster and the other's half a day. And I ended up getting the the waddle ones in, which were, took me half a day and then got them into the yards and we wanted the wallaby ones in instead. Uh, classic, classic. So like looking at that sort of communication... It's funny, it's not funny at the time with me and my old man, but like later on down the track, you learn a bit from those hiccups. Yeah, if you're not sure, ask. That's probably the lesson there, isn't it? And give clear instructions in the first place. Yeah, definitely. And especially like if you're coming onto the farm and you're not like within the family and you, I know, don't really want to speak out too much, but. You should when you got big decisions or small decisions to make just to make the day flow a lot easier. That's that's right. And and one of the things I'm passionate about is is taking 
um, lessons out of more formal workplaces, I suppose, based on from my short time in, in corporate agriculture and and the time I spent working in you know, universities and the public service. Um, a few meetings can actually save a lot of time, and uh, our our informal habits on on farm. You know, we, we could save a lot of confusion by just having a quick you know, toolbox meeting on a Monday morning um, or at the front of the shed just to articulate what's, what's going to happen for the week or even, a, you know, a quick five-minute one first thing in the morning. Uh, but because we're involved with family, we don't tend to do that formal communication. And... Um, and when it is done, it makes an enormous difference. And, and that's one of the, the traits of, of some of these high-performing farms is that they are prepared to take some of the business practices out of, I guess, the, the formal business world and, and incorporate them on farm. Yeah, and actually be running as a business. Correct, correct. Because they are, you know, they're biz, big businesses. Um, it, there's a, a lot of land, capital tied up in, in land and, and, and in turnover. Um, and there wouldn't be too many businesses where you're, you know, turning over um, excess of a million dollars and sometimes up to five or, or $10 million and it's all run intuitively, um, you know, in a few, based on the communication of a few grunts at breakfast. Yeah, definitely. Well, a little excerpt from your book was like, you don't need to be a huge farm in order to be profitable, looking at how we can better become more efficient. Yeah, correct. Correct. That's one of the, one of the um, things I wanted to cover off in the, in the book is, is a couple of assumptions that, that are made that aren't actually true. And one of those is many of the benchmarking studies done they consistently show that for each farm size, whether that's by turnover or by, by hectares, there'll be a range of returns. So that size itself isn't the determining factor of profit. You know, um, size certainly helps if you've got a really good business and uh, it, it's churning, churning over profit and then you can make it more efficient by... Um, getting your overhead costs down if you're running your machinery over, over more hectares. But if, uh, you know, you've got a business that's got inefficiencies in it um, and, it's, and it's sort of poorly run, for want of a better term, you know, a larger business, Bill Malcolm, one of the um, ag economist professors, you know, makes a comment that um, you know, a, a larger business a larger non-profitable business just creates a, a bigger loss, not a um, doesn't uh, um, uh, compensate and, and get that profit going. So I think that one of the excuses we hear is, "Oh, I'm not big enough." Um, you know, my neighbour's bigger, and and really, if if you as long as you match your overheads um, to the size of your farm, you can still run a really profitable farm. Yeah, of course, and. What do you do? Do you work off like percentages? Do you recommend to work off percentage and benchmarking for farm? Oh, look, I'm not as hung up on benchmarks as as um, as some, but certainly there, there's some handy ratios when it comes to to machinery 
um, investment for the size of the farm or the amount of um, grain you're producing. Um, you know, there's some handy investment ratios in terms of turnover and 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 overheads. So I, I think though it's really important to understand that all this research points to the most significant driving factor are the individual characteristics of your farm business. So we just need to be a little bit careful about using sort of broad benchmarks because if it doesn't apply to your specific industry and your specific area, it may not actually apply to you. Yeah, definitely. We can't just take a broad landscape of Australia and as a benchmark, but yeah, co correct. And e even within the district, um, you know, we, we sort of assume that it, that must be soil type differences or, you know, a rain shadow created by a hill or something like that. But it just seems to always come back to the decisions made on the individual farm is, is the most important factor. And, and that's a positive, Jack, because that means that if we work out what, those decisions need to be both at, and understand our financial position and also how we're traveling production wise relative to our potential based on rainfall it means we've got a lot more control than we perhaps think we do yeah absolutely and i think like benchmarking on your on your own on yourself is how you can better become and like grow step by step each year benchmarking like to yourself improving your own enterprise yeah exactly and and that's that's something i'm really passionate about is is understanding how your business goes um and then trying to explain um why it's performing the way it is so at a whole of business level but also at a uh, enterprise and, and down to a, a paddock level because in in broad acre ag quite often it's the um, characteristics of individual paddocks that and the and the cumulative effect of that uh, that drives profit so things like herbicide resistance for example and and weeds are often the the biggest um, profit limiting factor yeah of course for like 2020 and like going over to 21 we're looking at a bumper harvest maybe the second on record do you think like farms are coming under more pressure to perform and these smaller farms may be looking like they're getting kicked out, but they should just be lifting their own efficiencies. Yeah, look, it's always, you know, sometimes it's, it's always um, a bit daunting uh, if, if you're surrounded by, by larger, larger farmers, but um, uh, across my community and the clients I work with and, and friendship groups, you know, they've got a really broad range of scale um, and right across the, the country too. And, and in most cases this year, you know, yeah, again, scale's um, probably irrelevant to, to success and it's really the success seems to be a reflection of good agronomic decision-making throughout the year. And, uh, and we're really seeing the rewards um, in, in the harvester at the moment to, to making some 
good decisions and getting good advice and thinking things through and during the season and and being mindful to avoid sort of just the media noise and making sure you're using good information to make your decisions and working well with your agronomist, for example, and and using the weather forecasting materials and, and making sort of, um, I suppose, continually monitoring and then making decisions along the way. It wasn't an easy year this year on the on the East Coast, particularly in Southeast uh, Australia, because we and, and the same over in the West. Um, you know, we had the rain was very sporadic, so you had you know a good start for us and dry start in the West, and then we had um, quite a big dry patch and then promise of rain at the end. So it took quite a leap of faith to uh, to feed the crops with nitrogen in, in those conditions. Yeah, and just luckily a lot of the crops weren't wiped out with what was expected, the La Nina coming through. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that that's right. So, um, yeah, Harvest has been quite kind, um, thank goodness. And, and I guess... Uh, there's still potential for some some rain in the next couple of months based on the weather indicators at the moment. But, um, yeah, so back to your question about being more efficient. The, answer, the short answer is yes, but it, every farm needs to be efficient but also precise at the same time. Getting your numbers in order, do you mean, or...? Getting your numbers in order, but precision. Often we, often we um, get efficiency mixed up with simplicity. Yep. We like to keep things simple and easy. Yeah, I get on, In the name of efficiency, but off, basically, you know, we're we're, we're humanly um, tempted to do to take the easy route, and sometimes the easy route isn't actually the most efficient or or productive route. Yeah. Looking at like the variables of like even in a paddock, one end's really good, one's pretty crap. Yeah. Or I suppose, for example, you know, using, well, let's say with our wheat crop, you know, we might have a a 2,000 hectare farm and there's 1,000 hectares of wheat and we say, well, for efficiency's sake, we've just got to keep the nitrogen rate all the same. Yeah. And... And in actual fact, by doing that, you might be overfeeding some paddocks and underfeeding others. Yeah. So you're giving away profit um, uh, under the assumption of efficiency. And with that, like the farmer should see results pretty well, like after that crop's grown out. Yeah, and we're seeing that um, some of the clients I've been working with that that are. Um, really quite detailed and precise when it comes down to making nitrogen decisions and are pre pre you know, prepared to have different rates for different paddocks. Um, they're, they're very satisfied this year because they're getting extraordinary yields and, and making um, you know, at least APW in some cases H1. So, so they know they've sort of got the, got the mix right. And, and things like doing soil testing, there's temptation not to want to do soil testing in the middle of summer because it's hot and annoying and, um, you know, and you feel like you're spending money on stuff. You're not sure what you're going to get for it 
but it you know, it's the cheapest investment going around to to um, to do soil testing, particularly deep, you know, not to 60 centimetres or um, an appropriate level of subsoil testing for your nitrogen um, bank. Yeah, it's just not a teaspoon depth anymore. You've got to get like fair Correct. chunk down there. Yeah, yeah. So the naught to 10, the surface um, tests still have their place for things like phosphorus and, um, and pH and all those sort of basic um, tests like organic carbon. But... Uh, for things like nitrogen and, and sulfur and in some environments potassium, having having that um, that extra information at depth is really important. And um, it's uh, it's well worth you know finding someone who's prepared to do it. Often I think it's the and I sympathize with this, it's the agronomists that aren't too keen on doing the soil testing in, in February. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's also like the data, like as soon as you do start doing it, a lot of the farmers would be, shit, I should have done this 25 years ago. And you would have had that huge chunk of like research for your own farm. Yeah, the guys that like, that's the guys that I've worked with, you know, have done that and, and they've got you know, an amazing data set. And, and we've used that. We had an example a few years ago where, after a couple of tough years where we went back through sort of 10, 15 years of, of, of soil test data and, and looked at the phosphorus history. Yep. And, we, and we were able to work out from that which paddocks could we cut right back on in this coming out of a tough year, or a, um, a poor cash flow season and which paddocks we should get tested to just make sure and then which paddocks we we needed, you know, we, we couldn't afford to scrimp on. So rather than having the sort of the blank, well, let's just either forego phosphorus or cut the rate right back across the board, we were able to be really precise about it and, and save, you know, a significant amount of money in, in the, um, the fertiliser bill that year by doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And then that money can be transferred into, I don't know, infrastructure investment or it can be saved for a rainy day. Yeah, yeah. Or in this case, we're able to then use that allocation for um, nitrogen fertiliser later on in the season or other, you know, other um, variable cost inputs. Um, it just sort of went into that pool. But it was really, it was good to have that bit of extra cash um, compared to sort of just doing the same old thing every year and putting out a base rate without really thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. We all have a bit of cash on hand. Never goes astray. For yeah, like, yeah. For farming businesses working overseas in like marketing departments, forward planning was always a huge thing. We always had to do like five or ten year forecasts. With farming, though, it's completely different. We need to be reactive to the the way the environment works with us how like what's your recommendations on like two years for planning not doing it at all or six months uh, i think um the short answer is all of the above yep i uh, i think um you know, the, the bare minimum is having a good solid plan for the coming season 
Um, but that plan's adjustable. Yeah. There's key trigger points where where you may adjust the, the production plan. In terms of the overall business, it's probably something as an industry that we don't do that well. And, and um, but again, it fits under the traits of crops, people, money. There does, there is a trend that um, uh, people that perform quite well financially are planners and, and, and strategic in, in, the, in their planning. And I guess we, um, because we, you know, we like to be out and about and doing stuff rather than sitting down at a kitchen table or, or in an office, planning gets the bad rap. But I, um, you know, my business plan is is literally on a cardboard um, beer carton box on the inside because of the little circles gives you sort of a, a framework and, um, and and I'm quite visual and, you know, I prefer to write things by hand and cardboard's a bit more robust than scrappy bits of paper. So it doesn't have to be, you know, a 30-page document um, or, uh, you know, an expensive process to, to do some planning and get it out of your head. It, it's also a way of improving communication by, by planning forward. So, so I liken it to cleaning out the top drawer. Like we've all got a messy top drawer somewhere, whether it's in the kitchen, in the bedroom or in the workshop or at the glove box of the ute. And planning is really just emptying that top drawer, sorting it all out, and then placing it all back neatly in the top drawer again so it makes sense. Absolutely. It's just piecing all the puzzles together. I think as long as you've written it down, that's a good place to start. Get it out on a piece of paper. Yeah, 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 that's right, Jack. And I guess for those um, farmers that that tend to be more... um, uh, you know, keep things in their head or, or uh, not used to doing the writing down themselves, that, that's where engaging um, you know, at the services of an advisor or a facilitator or, or, or using, the, using the depth within the own business. You know, quite often now you've got uni-educated guys and girls like yourself coming back on the farm that have written plenty of assignments and as soon as they get back on the farm, they start being tractor drivers and um, forget about their their assignment writing skills. And basically, a business plan is just a big assignment. So um, I think we can u- utilise the skills we've got within our business as well. Yeah. And as long as like everyone comes down to the personal skills, you spoke about the three principles. Everyone knows that business plan, like from your employees out in the paddock. Correct, correct, and 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 that's um, I think because sometimes we're we're not natural communicators with the people close to us and and with our employees, getting some help to facilitate that communication and is um, makes the planning process easier and and I guess that's the sort of thing I do with um, with with clients is is um on the person that helps the sort of the unsaid stuff get said and yep. and then get communicated um 
so that everyone's on on the the same page and and yeah under often we make up stories about in our mind about what people are thinking and we're too scared to you know broach certain subjects and nine times out of ten when when it is um a conversation is conducted uh you'll find that everyone's on the same train of thought they just weren't game enough to ask each other yeah absolutely and i suppose like for people listening to this podcast or reading your book purchasing your book they're halfway to being a successful farmer if not already how how can we reach those others that like aren't looking so like as much as the other farmers that are looking to be innovative yeah well i guess um you know, we all learn from each other. So I think that's what I like about the world, the, the community, you know, community, whether it's um, the community on, on Twitter or, or LinkedIn or Facebook, you know, those virtual communities, or whether it's a, or Snapchat, Instagram, or whether it's the community at the local footy club um, or, you know, the, the, the pub in, in the small town or farming systems groups, there's, I think those that are, that are listening to this or, or reading the book, you know, if they've got mates that they think um, could do with a hand, you know, it might just be a matter of sort of inviting them along to a, in, in the days when we could go to field days, along to a field day or flicking them a podcast to have a listen to or, or um, you know, buying them a copy of the book for their birthday. Um Christmas coming up. Just a up. little shameless plug in there. <laughs> um, um, yeah, Christmas coming up, exactly. And and often I just know I, I really appreciate getting sort of gifts that help me um, develop myself in terms of business or just personal development. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I think if it's done in the right way, um, you know, it, it's just a matter of, helping people improve their awareness, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that's a shameless plug at all. I got you on the show because like, it's good to have a book that's relevant to me and like, heaps of others that I know. Um, and I think agriculture needs to start plugging themselves a bit more. Yeah, correct, uh, Jack. That's something I'm really passionate about. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, I, I just wanted to collate the evidence to demonstrate both to the farming community and to uh, mainstream media that that agriculture is actually a, a, a very um, fruitful ground for creating wealth when it's done well. And yes, we have really difficult seasons and, and runs of seasons, just like we've had at your way um, in, in New South Wales over the last few years. But we also have some very good seasons. And when, when that variability is managed well, um, you know, in our family farm that's been going for over 150 years, there's been plenty of um, runs of droughts and, and plenty of runs of, of good times. And it's just a matter, matter of, um, yeah, so saving the money from the good times and, um and so you can uh, ride out the bad times. 
it's all about smoothing out that line, isn't it? To stop the, the spikes and the drops um, and just bring it up into yeah. something controllable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, um, you know, in, when we're talking publicly, like the media loves a good disaster and uh, the drought situation gets a, a lot of coverage and a lot of sympathy and, and that's, that's lovely um, and it's nice to know that people have got your back when, when you're not travelling so well. But we're very reluctant to talk about our good times and there might be a passing reference. And the moment we talk about our good times, you know, you tend to get shot down because not everyone's doing it well this year, for example. Um, but when there's a drought, you know, there can be some areas that can have five good years in a row, but the whole emphasis is on on the drought. So, so I think if we can just accept that, there will be times of, of you know, low production and difficult times and there will be times of better production and, and better income and rather than sort of catastrophizing the tough times, I think mentally we'll be in a better place to make good decisions and you know, and I know it's awful. I, I grew up in droughts. So I've shifted sheep. You know, in 1982, I was in year nine and spent every every day of the school holidays reading a book up the one end of sheep on the road while the dog was tied up the other end. So I've lived through that uncertainty as a kid, and obviously worked. You know, I, I was a agronomist all the years through the millennium drought so sort of became an expert in in frost management drought management and counseling farmers really so so i'm not diminishing the emotional effect of drought i'm just encouraging people to we've just got to work out a better way to manage that mental load absolutely and like drought comes and goes but it's also a good time to look at the opportunities where you can look at your efficiencies, cut something off, or just plan plan ahead as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That that's right, and and it's really. You know, I think if we have the mindset in in periods of drought of just minimising our losses, and and I've seen businesses do this rather than drought periods being huge losses. You know now. They've got their drought management down that they might make a loss of sort of, you know, one between zero and one percent in terms of return on, on capital. And and it just so those really hard losses have, have been eliminated out of their system. And and it just means that you can you've got a lot more um, I guess depth in your business to, to ride out a tough time. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. So, like, writing the book, what was your favourite part? Oh, that's a good question, Jack. I think um, there's a couple of things. One was, was writing the anecdotes yeah. and and drawing on, on my family history and funny stories of people I've worked with and farms I've worked with to, to demonstrate a point. That was really good and and creating the models and the diagrams and the drawings and just trying to represent 
you know, fairly technical and financial information in a really simple way. But that's, um, that was my intention. It's really satisfying to get to the end of it and think, oh, I think, um, I think I've done what I set it out to do. Yeah, I bet I, it would have been a relief when you got it done, looking all at the words day in, day out. Absolutely. Jack, if you can imagine your most stressful uni assignment ever and multiply it by about a thousand, <laughs> that was yeah. the, um, that was the process that was, you know, first time author. Um, I've gained a lot of respect for people that write books, you know, every year. Um, not sure I'll be able to do that, but I'll certainly, I, I know I've got a few more books left in me. That's for sure. So you're going to have another crack? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll try and keep doing this. I really enjoy writing and um, it's one of my happy places. Will it and be if like I a, can make a, a sequel? Um, like a tag along? I'm or? not sure. I'm not sure. It might be just smaller targeted pieces. Yeah. Um, you know, like perhaps I might do something on, on buying land um, and, and getting more control over that because that, that's a real, you know, it's... For those that are wanting to grow and expand, sort of waiting for farmland to come up for sale can be quite stressful. And I reckon there's opportunity to to actually be a little more proactive and set yourself a, an expansion plan and then try and make it happen as opposed to just waiting for the block next door to come up on the market. Yeah, and, that's it. Um, don't, and six, don't, don't wait for the moment. Yeah, and succession planning is something, um, and again, it's mainly about the conversation. Yeah. I think um, there's quite a bit of that in, in the back of the book. Uh, there's probably, and there's, there are a couple of guidebooks out there around succession planning. But I think there's, I wouldn't mind putting together a bit of a workbook so that you know, a bit of a simple how-to or like a barefoot investor's guide to succession planning to take the take the um, fear away from it and get those conversations started. The barefoot farmer coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Although I think I'll better leave all that to, that brand to Scott Pape. <laughs> but one of my one of my friends suggested I should write a book called um, Fifty Spades of Hay. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, or another title that was suggested was um, Filthy Farming, How to Get Filthy Rich Out of Farming by Doing doing As You're Told. <laughs> You've got two books there ready to go. Yeah, it looks like it. I, I might refine those titles a bit, though, I think. So capturing the whole book might be pretty difficult, but what's one piece of farm's advice you would like to pass on from reading your book yeah, the most important concept is that you're the one in the driver's seat and it's all three crops, people and money that are important, but it's actually your decisions and your excellent choices by, by focusing on the controllables and learning how to manage the things that worry you that's the key. That's the art of excellent farming. Absolutely. I think that's a top piece of advice there. Um, to put into play to your own enterprise for anyone listening or reading Kate's book would be a great 
now for yourself, we always ask the guests who they would like to hear on Farms Advice podcast and why. Just to pass the buck and keep that word of mouth going. Oh, cool. Oh, I couldn't go past uh, Professor Bill Malcolm from the University of Melbourne. Jack, if you haven't managed to to um, get Bill on the podcast uh, yet, he's a um, he's he's a cracking fellow with a great turn of phrase and some of the um, funniest one-liners you'll ever you'll ever come across. Grew up on a Mallee farm in in Victoria and. Uh, made a career out of being an academic. It's um, one of the wisest man, men in agriculture. Absolutely. That's a top choice for that. Well, Kate, thank you very much for coming on the show. We'll round it off there. It's been great to get to know a bit about your book, but also like your backstory to it as well. Unreal. Thank you, Jack, and congratulations on, on Farms Advice and your initiative with this, I really think you're on the right track and I'm very passionate about um, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to, to get services into a, a product and and um, although this is an old school way of doing it, one of the things I'm really keen on doing is, is um, automating a, the opportunity for people to learn using digital services because I really think that's the way of the future. So well done in what you're doing and Let's hope we can do some fun stuff together at some stage. Absolutely. Well, you get the Farms Advice five-star appeal for our book reviews. Good on you, Jack. Thank you. You're also the first book that we've reviewed, so well done. (laughs) Oh, thanks for that. Um, It's sort of like uh, saying you're the best um, footy player in the team, but you're you're playing Aussie rules with a bunch of rugby players, isn't it? Pretty well, pretty well. Now, where can we find this book? Where can we buy it just before Christmas? Uh, if you go to www.thinkagri.com.au, yep. there is, um, and, and on there, there's a, a book page. So it's just a matter of clicking on that. And those orders will process pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so that's the go. Excellent. And there's also a little teaser there. So if you want to read that, Thanks for listening to our last podcast for the year as we slip into Christmas mode. To everyone that has supported the podcast in the first 27 episodes, I'd like to thank you and hope you'd been able to take something away from each episode and any others you've listened to. Don't forget to please like, comment and subscribe to help the Farms of Pice podcast reach every agricultural crevice in Australia. Visit farmsvice.com.au for the show notes and also a link to buy the book for that farmer in your life or even yourself. Until next time, cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.